Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The average educated American, if they know anything about the Civil War, knows that it ended at Appomattox in 1865. Of course, everyone listening to this show knows better. We know that the war continued elsewhere. There were Confederate troops still active under Joe Johnston in North Carolina, Kirby Smith out west, and so on. We know that Appomattox only ended the war in Virginia, or did it? In fact, the surrender there was only one act in a confusing, messy, and sometimes violent process of bringing the war in Virginia to a close. We'll hear about this previously untold story from Professor Caroline E. Janey, author of Ends of War, The Unfinished Fight of Lee's Army After Appomattox. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. Not representing the university, however, or anyone else, just myself, as our guest will do, as we always do here at the show. It's the first show back after Thanksgiving of 2021. It's December 1st, and I hope everyone who celebrates Thanksgiving had a a good uh, time this past week and is is ready for the return to uh, the normal work week. I certainly had a lot to be thankful for here. Uh, If you follow college football at all, you already know about my alma mater's cathartic victory over its main rival last Saturday. But what I was really thankful for this weekend was uh, family, for which football was was just the agent for that uh, throughout the weekend. On Thursday, while we were preparing the turkey dinner, we had the television with the Lions game on. It's a 90-year-old American tradition that the Detroit Lions play a professional football game at home on Thanksgiving every year. As a kid growing up in Detroit, I either went to the game or watched it on TV with my dad every year. But for the last, I don't know, seems like 100, maybe 40 years, uh, 
the Lions have been terrible, and they usually lose, and they lost this time. But that's just part of the tradition. On Friday, I took my daughters to the East Carolina game. We played Cincinnati, a highly rated team. Pirates held their own most of the game. It was a good game, but it was really wonderful to go with my two grown daughters, plus one boyfriend of one of theirs. Uh, They were good sports and indulging me, going to the game with me. They're not uh, connected to ECU other than through me. And then on Saturday, uh, the family, uh, the girls, and uh, my wife and I, we met as students at University of Michigan. My daughters grew up hearing hail to the victors uh, ringing in their heads every Saturday. So all of us put on our maize and blue and watched the big game, daring to hope that the unnatural losing streak of the last several years would, would end. And it did quite gloriously. I later overheard uh, one of the girls telling uh, a friend on, uh, that this was the best football experience the family had ever had together, and uh, it certainly was. So I'm, I'm still beaming about that, uh, both family and uh, Michigan's triumph. For a beam-worthy Civil War talk radio experience, you can go to impedimentsofwar.org, the website, or Impediments of War, the Facebook page, and see who's going to be on the show next. You'll find that next week we'll be talking with Deborah Willis, who is the author of The Black Civil War Soldier, A Visual History of Conflict and Citizenship. It's a book that got a lot of National Book Award talk this past year. And then after that, we'll take uh, our usual winter break. It'll be time for final exams here on campus. And we'll come back in 2022. The first show of the new year will be on January 12th. Uh, Frank O'Reilly will be our guest. We'll be talking about his classic work, The Fredericksburg Campaign, Winter War on the Rappahannock. Uh, It's a book I've always wanted to discuss. It's probably longer than can be comfortably read in a week, but I'll use the winter break to catch up on that, and we'll we'll talk with him about that. Uh, and plenty of other good shows lined up in January. You'll find out about them eventually. Uh, in the meantime, uh, go to the website, buy your books there, uh, and click on the donation button uh, if you are so moved uh, to donate to uh, CivilWarTR at AOL.com. Through PayPal, those are, of course, not tax-deductible donations. But once in a while, they go to a good cause, uh, not just to feed my own insatiable appetite for Civil War books or University of Michigan paraphernalia or whatever it is I'm buying. Uh, This week, last week, or two weeks ago, I believe I mentioned we have a, a... a new scholarship set up for graduate students in honor of... Uh, uh, late and much uh, lamented colleague Wade Dudley and the funds of the last few weeks were being donated to the Dudley Scholarship and uh, this week got a note this morning we're making our annual holiday collection among the faculty in the history department for the two members of the custodial staff who keep the Brewster building habitable. The Brewster building has four wings, three stories, but with budget cuts, the custodial staff is down to two people for the entire building, which is absurd. They work really hard, and so uh, it's a small gesture for for us who have our offices here to 
give them something over the holiday. And my donation to that fund is partly funded by your donations to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund. So you can feel you are doing something worthwhile uh, with your money. Or you can be entirely deceived. I might, as you know, just buy another bottle of Knob Creek. We just don't know. Uh, we do know that our guest tonight on the show will be uh, Caroline Janey, who is the John L. Now Professor uh, in History of American Civil War and the director of the John L. Now uh, Center for Civil War History at the University of Virginia. She has been on the show before, first in 2009, uh, with her first book, Burying the Dead But Not the Past, Ladies' Memorial Associations and the Lost Cause. And she came back five years later, 2014, to discuss uh, remembering the Civil War, reunion, and the limits of reconciliation. And following our five-year rule, she was back five years after that in 2019 with an edited essay collection, Petersburg to Appomattox, the End of the War in Virginia. Today we are violating the five-year rule, not waiting till 2024, uh, because her new book is getting so much attention in the Civil War world that we didn't want to wait to talk about it. It's called Ends of War, The Unfinished Fight of Lee's Army After Appomattox, and uh, let's talk. Carrie, are you there? I am. Thank you so much for having me again, Jerry. Well, welcome back to the show. It's it's good to talk with you again. Uh, I hope things are uh, going reasonably well there at UVA, that you're back to uh, teaching, perhaps face-to-face this semester. We are. We are in person, and it's wonderful to see Isn't students it? again. <laughs> oh, it's it's fantastic. And they are so grateful to be back as our the faculty and I, I just can't tell you the difference, the energy, the enthusiasm. It's, it's, it's contagious. It's wonderful. Um, I did not really appreciate you starting off talking about football. It was not a good weekend in Charlottesville on that front. <laughs> but, but beyond well, that, things are, are, are wonderful in Charlottesville. Well, that is good to hear. And, and basketball season is upon us, so we've got basketball that to Basketball is starting, to. and, you know, we're, we're, we're going to see how we get along the transfer portal i am not a fan of but we have some uh some good new kids in fact one of yours i believe um, oh uh jaden gardner just transferred yeah. up there yeah he's I, he's fantastic he but was the best player ecu in the pack line defense <laughs> no he was the best player ecu has had in many uh many a season and it was uh, we were very sad to see him transfer out, but uh, wish him the best, and I hope he leads you guys to a lot of victories. Yeah, he's, but, he's doing well here. So, I wanted to confirm ho- what you said for, for a good season. Absolutely, I just wanted to confirm what you said about the energy of the students. This semester has been the most fun teaching face to face, and the students' attendance has been good, and their, yeah. their their work effort has been good. I guess we all realize how much we missed actually having classes. Right, that, that contact, that human contact. And, you know, even if you only see half of a face with a mask on, right. still being able to, you know, use gestures when you, when you lecture and, and have that give and take in the classroom is just marvelous. It, 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 you know, we, we can't replicate that via Zoom or no, otherwise. No, absolutely not. And, and it's, we're, we're, it's just been great to have that experience. So uh, this book, which I 
very much enjoyed reading. Uh, you mentioned in the uh, acknowledgments that you started the project back when you were at Purdue University. So this has been in the works for quite a while. It has. I've been working on it. Let's see, my son is eight, and I probably started working on it in earnest when he was about two. So the, the past six years have been spent thinking about and, and working on this project. What what gave you the idea to look at the war after Appomattox? When did, when did it really hit you that, that Appomattox was, was a beginning and not an ending? So the last book that I talked to you about on the show mm-hmm. was a, a volume in the military campaign series that Gary Gallagher and I resurrected. He had, had started that many years ago at UNC. And we did one volume together, and then I was going to continue on with the series doing the Appomattox volume. And the piece that I ended up writing for that, which becomes part of this this book, that's what I thought I was doing. I thought I was writing an essay for this Appomattox campaign book. And I was long curious, given my interest in memory and the post-war period, I wasn't really connecting the dots thinking about the lost cause, but I was thinking about that end-of-the-war period. And, and logistically, you know, there had been a, a handful of books looking at the process of Confederates going home, and um, a few more came out in following years about Union soldiers going home, including Brian Jordan's wonderful book. But mm-hmm. it, it really started as what I thought would be an essay in a collection, and it quickly became apparent that there was so much to the story that I didn't know. And I kept going down rabbit holes and finding all of these questions about um, the legality of paroles and the the ethics of this. And so it was much bigger than a story of how Confederate soldiers made their way home after the war. Well, the... You mentioned parole is one of the fun things. Maybe fun might not be quite the right word. When you visit Appomattox Courthouse, and, and listeners, if you're ever remotely in the area, you, you don't want to miss that site. Uh, you can get from the uh, from, from the museum store there a, a printed copy of the the parole form that the soldiers were given, uh, and that's really central to this book that that. The soldiers of Lee's army are not sent to prisoner of war camps. They are paroled, and that's not something Grant invented at Appomattox. That happens. Talk about where where did the idea of parole come from? Well, the idea of parole had been around long before the the Civil War, so that's not a new concept. And there had been varying degrees during the course of the war of when there were surrenders or, or captures of soldiers that soldiers would be paroled. Uh, David Silkenat writes about this beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know most famously, I suppose, of the the surrender that Grant compels at Vicksburg and that he chooses, rather than sending the men to prisoner of war camps, he chooses to parole them all, send them home. They're on their honor. The, the parole is legally binding and morally binding that if they don't, wait until they are exchanged. If they break their parole, then the penalty for breaking one's parole is execution. So this concept had been around. Even people like John Mosby are paroling mm-hmm. Union soldiers as they capture them. So that's, that's not a new concept. Then again, it is quite different from what happened at the end of the American Revolution. If we look at what happens following Yorktown, 
officers are allowed to go home on parole, British officers, but the vast majority of enlisted men are sent to prisoner of war camps in Winchester, Virginia, and Frederick, Maryland, and remain there for quite some time. So it isn't a natural thing. There, We have this assumption that this is going to happen. And I, I think one of the, the big things about this project was I began to peel back my own expectations and my own um, assumptions about what should have happened, what could have happened. And if you really slow down the pace and think about the decisions that are being made, you know, minute by minute and even, you know, up to week by week, you start to see that 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 contingency that, that people like Edward Ayers have, have talked so beautifully about. And the paroles are, are one of those, those things that Grant didn't have to send these men home. It was certainly the most practical thing to do. But as the, the Army of Northern Virginia is pushing west, and I also think we need to, to reframe, we, we often talk about Lee's campaign that pushed west as the retreat. It wasn't a retreat. He's trying to make his way west so that he could make his way south to hook up with Joe Johnston. But all along the route, as it becomes increasingly clear that things might not go well for Lee's army, there are soldiers who are worried about what's going to happen. Are they going to be sent to northern prisoner of war camps? Are they going to be paraded through the streets of Washington and humiliated? So we need to, to kind of roll back and, and forget what we know happens and look at it in a day-by-day basis and see how, um, how fragile and how complicated and messy and uncertain this period was. Yeah, it, that's recapturing that that sense of contingency. Since you know, there's no spoiler alert here. We all know what's going to happen at at Appomattox, uh, but there's there's fighting there on on the morning of the surrender. There's Confederates who are still fighting, uh, but as you point out in the book, there are those who are outside of Lee's lines at the moment of surrender, and then the question comes up: Does the surrender apply to them? Uh, and there are the soldiers you just mentioned who have been left behind as stragglers all the way from Richmond and Petersburg. Does it apply to them? So there are a lot of open questions. We'll take a short break and come back and start talking about some of these questions regarding the conclusion of the fighting in Virginia. That's the topic of the book Ends of War, The Unfinished Fight of Lee's Army After Appomattox. We're talking with its author, Caroline E. Janey. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD, using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Caroline E. Janey, author of Ends of War, The Unfinished Fight of Lee's Army After Appomattox. So, Carrie, we were talking about the paroling of the members of the Army of Northern Virginia at Appomattox, but as you point out in the book, there are a lot more soldiers on Lee's rolls than there are uh, listed as being paroled. Right. So, doing some very rough math, and of course, numbers can always be debated, but the, the short version is that there are approximately 20,000 men who belonged to Lee's army that were not surrendered at Appomattox. And the reasons for not surrendering at Appomattox are incredibly varied. That includes men who were on detached duty, and in that I'm including people like Mosby's Rangers that are operating in northern Virginia. But that also includes those stragglers that you mentioned, footsore, weary soldiers who couldn't keep up with that relentless pace of the Army of Northern Virginia as it pressed west. It also includes a significant number of cavalrymen and artillerists who managed to escape the Union cordon on the morning of April 9th, who are outside of the Union lines and have decided that, as such, they are not included in those surrender terms. So there's a variety of different reasons why the men aren't there. Um, Others who truly should have been there and who escape when they realize what's happening, who take off. I I open the book um, talking about David McIntosh, who's an artillerist from South Carolina, who he and others see very clearly what's about to happen, and they rip off their badges of insignia and basically head south, trying to make their way away from the surrender that they see as imminent. So there's a a whole host of reasons that they aren't there, but it's significant in the fact that we haven't really accounted for these men before and and what was going to happen to them, why they weren't there, and, and what would happen to them following the terms that Grant offers on April 9th. So where where do they go? Well, it, it depends on what those circumstances were. A, a significant number of the cavalrymen will be disbanded by their their respective officers 
sent west, sent to the Shenandoah Valley, to the mountains, to hide out and await word of when to reconvene. Tom Rosser and Tom Munford will, will do this. They will both issue stirring calls calling for their cavalry to, to reunite and to fight once more. A, a significant portion will head south, making their way or trying to make their way into North Carolina. There's a group of artillerists that have, have been told, they've heard through the rumor mill, that they're supposed to meet up in Lincolnton, North Carolina, which is in the, the western part of the state. And from there, they will receive orders on, on what they're to do next. And so they're making their trek from Appomattox, they head toward present-day Roanoke, Virginia, and then south down into to western North Carolina. There are those who head directly toward Joe Johnston's lines, hoping to offer their services there. And there are, I'd say, the vast majority that aren't in the, the ranks have simply gone home. Significant number of Virginians do this. Certainly far easier for those from Virginia to fall out of the ranks and go home than it would be for, for someone, say, from the Texas Brigade to do mm-hmm. so. There's an example of a man named Benjamin Sims who gets separated from his company um, on, on April 2nd, and he decides, you know what, I'm, I'm just not going back. I've, I'm, I'm going home. And that's exactly what he does. He makes his way back toward Louisa County, Virginia, where he's from. So... Again, it de- depends on, on who and what the circumstances were, but they really fan out. And I imagine, in my mind, uh, Appomattox as this, uh, if you think about the ripple effect of, of throwing a, a stone into a pond and seeing that rippling out from it, and including in that ripple out are those who probably should have surrendered at Appomattox and those who did, and we see this effect spreading out well beyond the, the confines of Appomattox and the surrounding areas into northern Virginia, into southern Virginia, into North Carolina, into Maryland, so on and so forth. So Appomattox is only the very beginning of the story that I'm telling. So what about the, uh, the, the troops who do surrender and are now going home? They're, they're once they've been paroled, the, the, the parole passes have been printed, and the men have them in their hands, they're essentially free to go. This this is kind of a remarkable thing. It's still The war is still on. Joe Johnston's still got an army going. Uh, and these, these men you point out are leaving not just as individuals, but often they're, they're going home as units. Right. So, this is one of the things that, that really surprised me, were these accounts, and there are, are far more diaries and letters that continue after April 9th than I expected to find because nearly every story of the Civil War, at least the military side Mm -hmm. of the war, ends on April 9th. But the diaries continue. And just anecdotally, I'll say that that there's a diary that I I use substantially that the original diary is is at uh, University of North Carolina, and it continues for several weeks after the surrendered Appomattox, mm-hmm. but if you look at the edited volume, what is what is published, it ends on April 9th. And mm-hmm. so it tells you something about the decisions that editors made, thinking about when the war ended and when it didn't. But, but back, back to your question, that many of these men are marching away, if not in brigades, at least in regiments and companies. So there's a, a group 
that is headed to southwest Virginia and eastern Tennessee that is about a 1,000 strong that march away from Appomattox looking very much like soldiers marching away from any other battlefield except that they no longer have their rifles, they no longer have their regimental flags. So this is, is part of the process. It's something that they didn't do on a whim. This is part of what the commissioners come up with, the six commissioners, three Union, three Confederate, appointed by Grant and Lee to decide on the, 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 the nitty-gritty details of what the surrender is, is going to look like, what the disbanding is, is going to look like. And part of, of what the commissioners say is that these units will stay together, will march away under the control of their officers, keeping in mind that officers still have their sidearms, so they still mm-hmm. have some degree of control over these men. Of course, the farther they get from Appomattox, the more that unit cohesion breaks down. And one of the things you mentioned was that there's parole passes that were printed mm-hmm. by Gibbons Corps there at Appomattox. You, can, you were saying you can go into to Clover Hill Tavern and, and see mm-hmm. the, the, the examples of the printing presses. But many of, of the officers actually held on to those parole passes until they did decide to break up, knowing that the men needed those parole passes to get rations, to get any transportation. So they aren't handed out necessarily at Appomattox. Some of them are handed out farther uh, afield from the surrender site. Now, these passes, as you know, according to the terms Grant and Lee agreed on, they entitle the men to uh, transportation through the Union lines uh, at no personal expense to them, and they can draw rations using these. Why did Grant come to these really extraordinarily generous terms to to give them in transportation, the enemy soldiers' transportation and food? Uh, Why not just say, okay, we're just going to build a stockade right here, Andersonville North, everybody stay here until we capture Joe Johnston? Uh, why, why well, not do it that and, way? And to your point, he, he could have mm-hmm. done that. And that's what mm-hmm. we can't forget, is that certainly was an option on the table. Not very feasible. He knows that. He also knows that the goal of the war is union and mm-hmm. reunion. And so going back to that early 1861 sentiment that, that Lincoln and others had, that there was all of this latent unionism in the Confederacy, and that if only a, a rosewater policy, a conciliatory policy, to use Mark Grimsley's term, could be applied, that these people would show themselves and that they would support the Union. And that, that isn't really in effect anymore, but the notion that if we're going to put this Union back together, we need to be magnanimous. Grant is applying the terms that he knows Lincoln wants him to do, and that, that meeting above, aboard the River Queen in late March, he's heard... Lincoln say just this. He's also certainly familiar with, with Lincoln's words in the second inaugural of, of malice toward none, charity toward all. And so this, this is part of the rationale. It's also certainly not feasible to, to really create a stockade and hold them as prisoners of war. But the addition of allowing paroled Confederates to pass through the lines when necessary to reach their homes, to pass through Union lines, when necessary to reach their homes, or to travel aboard government-owned or controlled railroads and steamers, 
is a provision that Grant adds the next day. That comes from Special Orders Number 73 on the morning of April 10th when he meets for that second time with Lee. And so his goal there is to get these men as home as quickly as possible. He is very um, afraid. Of, I mean, afraid is, is a really strong term, but he's worried about the potential of guerrilla warfare fanning out. So his goal is to get these men home to end this war as quickly and as peacefully as possible. So those account for the very generous terms that he offers. And those are, again, they're, they're additions. They're not part of that original agreement. And they'll be rescinded. They'll be rescinded within a matter of, of days and weeks following Lincoln's assassination. Well, that's certainly a, a, a turning point. The point about guerrilla war is it seems to me critical because Jefferson Davis is still at large, and he is openly calling for absolutely Confederates to keep fighting. Uh, you know, we shall fight on the hills, we shall fight on the beaches, uh, a sort of Churchillian, we shall never surrender <laughs> right. call, which. Right. Uh, uh, I always get my students with that. Uh, why is one of these guys a hero and one of these guys uh, a maniac trying to pro- prolong the war? Uh, anyway, but it's a real threat. Grant's really concerned. It, Lincoln, everyone's and, really and concerned. And even if it's, it's not a war. real threat, mm-hmm. he believes it is. Mm-hmm. And so does Sherman. I mean, Sherman is writing letters to Ellen, to his wife, even as. Grant is compelling the surrender of Lee at Appomattox, and Sherman's worried about guerrilla warfare. He's worried about what's going to happen if these small bands pop up across the South, because it's one thing to meet an organized army on the battlefield and have a clear victor, at least in most cases, have a clear victor. Mm-hmm. That, that's one type of war, but to wage a, a guerrilla war is a whole other beast. And even though it didn't happen, and even though the likelihood of it happened may seem distant, the fear of it compels both Grant and Sherman to, to behave as they do. And, and keep in mind that the most notorious, at least in the minds of, of most Unionists and certainly those in and around Washington, D.C., John Mosby is, is still at large and refusing mm-hmm. to surrender. And so that fear is very palpable. So the Confederates are are dispatched home as quickly as possible, and uh, we we talked a minute ago about how they go home as units, uh, in part to to avoid disorder, to just have have individual hungry soldiers marauding through the countryside. But you point out that even at that, there's a lot of disorder. Uh, what happened in Greensboro, North Carolina, I was surprised to read uh, in your book about the, they actually, they, they start shooting. Right, right. So it happens in, in Greensboro, it happens in Charlotte, um, you, it happens in um, Augusta, that mm-hmm. Confederate soldiers are hungry. They are um, you know, by this point, they very much have dispersed. But by the time they get to Greensboro, some of them are still with their brigade commanders. But by the time they get much farther through North Carolina, that has has dissipated. But they're going to government stores, government warehouses, to quartermaster's departments, and and looking for that, for not just food, but also for any other provisions for, for cloth and clothing, things that they see that they are entitled to. 
and in, in several instances, violence, melee occurs, and it b- becomes an issue where even Johnston's troops will be called in to put down some of the, the men from Lee's army who are raiding these quartermaster's departments. And, you, you know, there, these are, there's only a handful of these instances, but they do happen, and they show, you know, what happens when you send 60,000 men home and, and the, the, the chaos that is, is absolutely sure to follow. Hungry men at that. The, uh, the other form of, of chaos that you describe throughout the book is, is that of the legal questions of all of this. Um, uh, and I want to talk about that in our, our last segment, but just a, a, a quick in, in the two minutes before we take a break. Um, Another group that gets caught up in this are the the black men with Lee's right. army. That the, uh, they're in a very peculiar position, aren't they? They are, and you know we tend to forget the fact that there were probably still hundreds of enslaved men and black men who were laboring for the Confederate army that are still with Lee's army as of Appomattox. Some of those men make it onto the parole lists. Others we know about because their, um, their, their owners, their former owners, we can debate the merits of, of what their, their legal status was at this moment, write about them in, in letters. And so we, so we have some of these accounts, no accounts really from the, the African-American men themselves, but they're there, and they have choices to make, too, about how will they get home. Will they travel home on their own? Is that risky? Will they travel home with their former masters to their own families that are, are likely still in those same places, South Carolina, elsewhere? And so, so this is, is a, a big part of the, the story of, of who is there and, and how are they um, making these decisions is it in their best interest to, to travel with white soldiers, given much of the violence that is already uh, rearing its head against African Americans? There are, are tales. Some um, some Confederates will will brag years later. There's a, a group of Floridians who brag about killing not one but several United States colored troops soldiers along their way home. And the, uh, the military commission records suggest that, in fact, there were USCT soldiers who were killed by returning rebels during the, the months after Appomattox and after Durham Station. So the, the, the violence is continuing. This world turned upside down as slavery is, is coming to an end, as emancipation is, is coming about often via bayonet. But but all of this is is throwing the world into chaos. It, it's just a, a fascinating time to read about. Uh, we're talking tonight with Caroline E. Janey, author of Ends of War, The Unfinished Fight of Lee's Army After Appomattox. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We'll be back shortly with more Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. 
We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Caroline E. Janey, author of Ends of War, The Unfinished Fight of Lee's Army After Appomattox. We've been talking about the the disintegration of the army uh, after the surrender terms, the men being paroled, they're going home, uh, sometimes as individuals, sometimes as units, some are leaving without getting paroled and are perhaps going to keep up the fight or just leave the war. There's chaos everywhere. Uh, And in particular, Gary, you show in this book that we think of the soldiers going south after Appomattox back to to Dixie, but a fair number of them are heading north back to their homes in Maryland or or, uh, West Virginia or Kentucky. And that means you've got former Confederate soldiers still in uniform, uh, in these loyal Union communities, very uh, it, it, it's a very touchy situation. What what, uh, what what do they do there? It is. So this is yet another question that Grant hadn't stopped to consider. And I'm not necessarily faulting him for not considering this, but, but one of the many questions that that becomes apparent in the aftermath of the surrender is what do you do with the 75,000 men approximately from the loyal states of Kentucky, Missouri, and Maryland, and, and West Virginia becomes its own special case, that fought for the Confederacy? Because it was one thing to send paroled soldiers back to states that had seceded where the majority of the population had been in rebellion, and mm-hmm. the terms of, of figuring out what to do with the civil governments was still up for debate. But what about states that had remained loyal to the Union, where most of the population was loyal? Should former Confederates be allowed to return to those states? I mean, if, if anyone could be labeled a traitor completely clearly, it seems that those who have left their loyal states, they, they can't argue that they were simply following their states when they were, were fighting for the Confederacy. So this becomes a question, especially in the wake of Lincoln's assassination, 
keeping in mind that Booth and many of the other conspirators, along with those who allegedly helped him escape, were from Maryland. So one of the, the, the questions that the Union High Command is having to deal with is whether to allow these men to return to their homes in, in, in these various states. And you know, there, there's so much to the story, it becomes a, a legal question as much as a military question, and the Attorney General will weigh in on it with an opinion, declaring ultimately that those from loyal states have no homes in those states anymore, and they aren't allowed to return home, makes an exception for West Virginia, because West Virginia had, in fact, been part of Virginia prior to the state breaking off and becoming its own state in 1863, that becomes a whole other case, and so Confederates should be allowed to return there. But locals, both in, in Maryland and West Virginia, are outraged. Local unionists are outraged that Confederates would be allowed to return home. And so one of the really fascinating things to me were these committees of vigilance and safety that formed throughout those two states. You, know, you can hear that revolutionary rhetoric that are, are formed to look out for returning rebels and there to report if there are any rebels who, who come within the, the boundaries of that county and there to be run out. It's a long history of these vigilante committees, but, but we see it really coming to, to fruition here in this immediate post-war period. And the, a fair number of these southern soldiers returning don't help themselves much in that they continue to wear their uniforms uh, and essentially that uh, they're not the least bit cowed. They're not defeated. They, they, uh, they, they march around in their brass buttons as if uh, they're still thumbing their nose at the United States. Uh, right. Well, there's a couple of different levels to that. On on mm-hmm. one hand, if these men have been sent home from Appomattox, keep in mind Grant's terms said nothing about them wearing their uniforms or not. Mm-hmm. And so if that is the clothing that they have on their back and they don't have any any greenbacks or, or anything else to purchase any other clothing on their way home, mm-hmm. keeping in mind that, that his surrender terms had said that the men would go home on parole there to remain unless they um, broke any laws. And so mm-hmm. on one hand, we can't fault them for returning home wearing their Confederate uniforms. On the other hand, those who continue to do so, you're absolutely right that that is seen as a, you know, a smack in the face to loyal Unionists. And so we, we have these orders that are popping up in various districts and various departments where Union commanders are forbidding Confederate uniforms. And it, that, that doesn't come from Grant. It doesn't come from on high. That's really at the local level that we see that popping up. But there's lots of accounts, even, even as these men are making their way home, that Union soldiers will come up to them and cut off their buttons, cut off their rank of insignia, because they see it as, as so offensive. And that's one of the, the themes that, that pervades the book, is that a lot of the decision-making is being made at the local level uh, to deal with the immediate problem. It's not coming from Grant or from from uh, Washington, D.C., and all these decisions keep having these unexpected consequences. Right. Uh, it's, there's it, a, a, 
I don't know if domino effect is the right analogy to use or not, but there's this kind of ping-ponging that, that goes on, and, and one decision here will then cause someone else to, to respond this way. And I, I think for the most part, people were doing the best that they could, the, the union commanders, mm-hmm. be that Hancock in the Valley or Lou Wallace in, in Baltimore, but they are, they're making these decisions in the moment to deal with the circumstances as they arise and as they see best. Um, and, you know, again, there, there's no blueprint for how to do this. There's no blueprint for how to end a war. There, there's no clear sense of, of what's going to happen next. And, 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 as you've pointed out, and during much of this story, there are still significant numbers of Confederate soldiers in the field with Johnson and Kirby Smith and Richard Taylor and others. So there's all these layers of complexity. Uh, the, the legal issues that pervade this are, are another fascinating angle. The paroles say that if they go home, the soldiers go home, they won't be bothered by the United States government as long as they go home and, and obey the law. But that's not the same as saying they uh, well well it brings up all kinds of questions are what about treason trials uh, are those still possible are these paroles simply temporary wartime measures once the war is over uh, then then they can be tried uh, nobody seems to know these things right there's, there's, there's this basket of questions that that arise from all of this and we need to remember that that provision that Grant adds about men not, as, as so long as they go home, that they won't mm-hmm. be disturbed by U.S. authorities as long as they main, maintain good be- behavior. In other words, as mm-hmm. long as they don't break the law. That's a provision that hadn't appeared in other surrenders. That's one that, that Grant adds, and it proves controversial from the moment he offers it. There are immediately calls from from unionists and saying, you know, has, has Grant overstepped his boundaries? And this is a question that, that Secretary Stanton is going to be asking. It's why he asks Attorney General Speed to look at, at Grant's terms of surrender. Did Grant have the authority to issue the terms of surrender that he does? And so we see Speed discussing, you know, what authority does a commanding general have as opposed to the president? What could, could Lincoln ask Grant to do for him and what couldn't he ask him to do? But the, the really fascinating thing is about the legal state of war. And there's a, a real distinction here between what people perceived as war and Greg Downs makes a, a, a wonderful argument about this, but th- there's a difference in the, the legal state of war, because mm-hmm. under the legal state of war, having treated Confederates as enemy belligerents, the parole provides protection. If you are paroling an enemy soldier, you, mm-hmm. or to put it another way, enemy soldiers could be defeated, but they can't be prosecuted. There's no right. need to punish your, your enemy. But once that legal state of war is removed, then perhaps those paroles no longer protect Confederates. And so this is the, the dance that people are doing. This is the, the dance about the indictments that come down against Lee and 36 others in early June of 65. 
um, including 16 officers from the Army of Northern Virginia, in, indicting them for treason. So all of this is a question about to what extent did the paroles serve as a pardon, or are they acting in some other capacity? It's uh, fascinating. There have been some, some excellent recent scholarship on, on that topic as well. I want to ask in the few minutes remaining about an important uh, uh, outcome of all this is that you noted several points. The way the surrender is conducted uh, ultimately helps to uh, frame the beginning of the lost cause narrative. How, how does that come out of this? Right. And, you know, I, I should state that having written two books on memory, I was not setting out to write a book on memory. <laughs> that was, was not my goal whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But by the time I got to the end of, of writing, I realized, wow, it's, it's there from the very beginning that ev- everything that, that you just mentioned, that the surrender itself, the, 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 the process, the humiliation of registering at a provost marshal's office, the, the perils that border region Confederates face, their struggles to go home, the presence of white and black Union occupying troops, all of this emboldens their claims, Confederates' claims of, of righteousness and em, emboldens their claims of Northern barbarity. And so... There had never been this golden moment when they had been so thoroughly subjugated that they were willing to accept any conditions. And the lost cause grows very naturally out of this. It grows out of this defiance. It grows out of, out of the hatred and the, the seething and the pride that, that comes with the end of the war. And so, again, this, this wasn't something I was looking for. It was just kind of hitting me in the face by the time I had had kind of told the story to myself. Well, you you point out Lee's farewell order that is often held up as a really an example of American literature. Uh, also contains the seeds of of some of the lost cause elements. The enemy was bigger than we were, but not better. Right, right. Certainly that aspect of we weren't defeated, but overwhelmed by superior northern resources. But he also refers to our countrymen, your countrymen. Mm. And the northern press goes ballistic about this as soon as that's reported in in the, the New York papers. So they're seeing it, and they're seeing, saying, hey, look, they haven't renounced this traitorous cause that they're fighting for, that... That, that that's how Northerners, how Unionists are, are perceiving it immediately. So this isn't us reading back into time what Lee is saying. Mm-hmm. That, that is how it was received at the time by those in the, the loyal North. It, it's a fascinating glimpse into what people were saying then. And uh, the book is throughout. We are unfortunately at the end of our time to talk about the ends of war. But uh, listeners, you will thoroughly enjoy uh, this book, Ends of War, The Unfinished Fight of Lee's Army After Appomattox. You know, people say all the time, how can you read another Civil War book? What new is there to say? And then something like this comes along, and there's a whole uh, month and then a year of activity that we just haven't looked at carefully that is really critical to understanding the war. So, listeners, you'll enjoy this book, and Carrie, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for being on the show again. 
Well, thank you so much. It's been absolutely my pleasure, and thank you for all your kind words. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.